The Guardian. London. That great, large place. Nobody, not even Mr Bumble, could ever find him there. Oliver Twist, one of Charles Dickens' most famous characters and inextricably linked to this place, London. I'm John Henley, and in this podcast walk, we're going to be following a route taken by Oliver, starting at the Angel Islington, his entry point into London, and ending at the courthouse of Mr Fang, the magistrate, in Clerkenwell. The tour is designed to be taken on location as a guided walk, and it should work in real time. There's also a map you can download to ensure that you don't get out of sync. If you're listening at home, the podcast should work as a documentary in its own right. But if you are walking with us, make your way now to the junction of Bachelor Street and Liverpool Road, near the Angel Islington. He had often heard the old men in the workhouse too say that no lad of spirit need want in London, and that there were ways of living in the vast city which those who had been bred up in country parts had no idea of. It was the very place for a homeless boy who must die in the streets unless someone helped him. As these things passed through his thoughts, he jumped upon his feet and again walked forward. So I'm here now with The Guardian journalist Veronica Horwell, who's going to be our guide. We've walked up Liverpool Road, we've turned into Bachelor Street and we have turned around. We're, we're standing now right opposite a, a magnificent Victorian building, brick building, two rather splendid towers. Veronica, what's the significance of this place? This is the Agricultural Hall. It wasn't there in the time when Dickens wrote Oliver Twist, but what was there were pens for cattle who'd been driven in from the country. They were on their way to be slaughtered in small batches in Smithfield. And we're just outside London, where the last bit where London reaches out towards the country and the country sends its cattle and its turnips and its homeless poor towards London. Hmm. And what would have been around us in, in, in Dickens's time then? It was a kind of barrier before you crossed into that alluring world that was London. The cattle pens were fenced off. You had to put them somewhere before they went into Smithfield to die. And also the market cart stopped here. And this is the path that Oliver would have taken then on his way into town. He'd have come in along the main roads here. By that time, he'd picked up, or rather a London boy had picked him up, seeing an easy mark. And they came into London via the Angel, but just a little bit circuitously, because the boy who picked him up certainly didn't want to meet the law. So, Veronica, just before we set off, bring us up to speed with Oliver's story up to this point. Oliver is a runaway from the wretched life of a country workhouse. He's been born to an unknown woman brought up on the, dragged up on the parish Hmm. and dumped in an appalling job where he's been brutalised and abused. And he's so desperate that although he is a very young child, primary school age, he has walked to London starving because here 
might be better. Let's hope so. <laughs> so, okay, so to reach our next location then, we're going to walk down Liverpool Road towards Upper Street. We're going to turn right at the end. Then we're going straight over the crossroads, continuing down St John Street. We're taking the first right into Chadwell Street and then the first left into Arlington Way. And we're going to go up as far as the Harlequin Pub on the left. Dickens arrived in London when he was around 12 years old and he was destitute. His father being a debtor was mewed up in the Marshall Sea and the boy was sent to work to keep himself alive. He worked down at Hungerford Stairs, which are by what is now Charing Cross, and he lived most of the week up on the edge of Camden. Even if there had been public transport, he would not have been able to afford it. So he began his lifelong habit of walking everywhere for entertainment, knowledge, recreation, and he kept it up almost all his life. While he was writing his novels, he made a habit of walking anything from six to ten miles a day. Hmm. We're going to follow the specific walking directions he gave us and you just know he's done that walk over and over. Hello, my covey. What's the row? The boy who addressed this inquiry to the young wayfarer was about his own age, but one of the queerest-looking boys that Oliver had ever seen. He was a snub-nosed, flat-browed, common-faced boy enough and as dirty a juvenile as one would wish to see. But he had about him all the airs and manners of a man. He was short of his age, with rather bow legs and little sharp, ugly eyes. His hat was stuck on the top of his head so lightly that it threatened to fall off every moment, and would have done so very often if the wearer had not had a knack of every now and then giving his head a sudden twitch, which brought it back to its old place again. He wore a man's coat which reached nearly to his heels. He had turned the cuffs back halfway up his arm to get his hands out of the sleeves, apparently with the ultimate view of thrusting them into the pockets of his corduroy trousers, for there he kept them. He was altogether as roistering and swaggering a young gentleman as ever stood four feet six or something less in his blutches. Hello, my covey. What's the row? said this strange young gentleman to Oliver. I am very hungry and tired, replied Oliver, the tears standing in his eyes as he spoke. But come, said the young gentleman, you want grub and you shall have it. I'm at a low watermark myself, only one bob and a magpie, but as far as it goes, I'll fork out and stump. Up with you on your pins. There, now then, Morris. Assisting Oliver to rise, the young gentleman took him to an adjacent chandler's shop where he purchased a sufficiency of ready-dressed ham and a half-quartern loaf, or, as he himself expressed it, a fourpenny brain. The ham being kept clean and preserved from dust by the ingenious expedient of making a hole in the loaf by pulling out a portion of the crumb and stuffing it therein. Taking the bread under his arm, the young gentleman turned into a small public house and led the way to a tap room in the rear of the premises. Here, a pot of beer was brought in, by direction of the mysterious youth, and Oliver, falling to at his new friend's bidding, made a long and hearty meal, during the progress of which the strange boy eyed him from time to time with great attention. Going to London? 
said the strange boy, when Oliver had at length concluded. Yes. Got any lodgings? No. Money? No. The strange boy whistled and put his arms into his pockets as far as the big coat sleeves would let them go. Do you live in London? inquired Oliver. Yes, I do when I'm at home, replied the boy. I suppose you want some place to sleep in tonight, don't you? I do indeed, answered Oliver. I have not slept under a roof since I left the country. Don't fret your eyelids on that score, said the young gentleman. I've got to be in London tonight, and I know a respectable old gentleman as lives there what'll give you lodgings for nothing, and never ask for the change, that is, if any gentleman he knows introduces you. And don't he know me? Oh no, not in the least, by no means, certainly not. The young gentleman smiled, as if to intimate that the latter fragments of discourse were playfully ironical, and finished the beer as he did so. This unexpected offer of shelter was too tempting to be resisted, especially as it was immediately followed up by the assurance that the old gentleman referred to would doubtless provide Oliver with a comfortable place without loss of time. This led to a more friendly and confidential dialogue from which Oliver discovered that his friend's name was Jack Dawkins and that he was a peculiar pet and protégé of the elderly gentleman before mentioned. Mr Dawkins' appearance did not say a vast deal in favour of the comforts which his patron's interest obtained for those which he took under his protection, but as he had a rather flighty and dissolute mode of conversing and furthermore avowed that among his intimate friends he was better known by the sobriquet of the Artful Dodger, Oliver concluded that, being of a dissipated and careless turn, the moral precepts of his benefactor had hitherto been thrown away upon him. Under this impression, he secretly resolved to cultivate the good opinion of the old gentleman as quickly as possible, and if he found the dodger incorrigible, as he more than half suspected he should, to decline the honour of his father acquaintance. As John Dawkins objected to their entering London before nightfall, it was nearly eleven o'clock when they reached the turnpike at Islington. They crossed from the Angel into St John's Road, struck down the small street which terminates at Sadler's Wells Theatre, through Exmouth Street and Coppice Row, down the little court by the side of the workhouse, across the classic ground which once bore the name of Hockley in the Hole, thence into Little Saffron Hill, and so into Saffron Hill the Great, along which the Dodger scudded at a rapid pace, directing Oliver to follow close at his heel. So hopefully you've made it as far as Arlington Way by now. If you haven't, you could try pausing the podcast until you do. We're outside the Harlequin pub, green tiles outside, hanging flower basket. Um, And if you just raise your eyes a little bit, you'll see just behind it um, the top of the Sadler's Wells Theatre. Veronica, the the story of Oliver Twist was always meant to be very theatrical, wasn't it? Just how extensive were were Dickens' connections with the theatre? Well, he'd fallen in love with popular melodrama when he was a very small boy and was actor, impresario, scriptwriter. So he knew all the popular plays in this relatively cheap, easy-to-make, exciting form. And he never stopped being addicted to theatre. In fact, one of the last things he did before he died was to put in a tender for a real, proper, full-scale theatre he was going to run. Hmm. He acted all the parts of all the characters Hmm. in the novels to a mirror 
as he was writing them, because if he got their expressions right, he knew what they were going to say. So it fed into his writing. Absolutely. And also the structure, especially of his early novels, was very, very closely based on the popular plays, the melodramas, that were put on in the cheap non-West End theatres, like here at Sadler's Wells. And they really, really were rough. This is the way he described Sadler's Wells. He said it was entirely delivered over to as ruffianly an audience as London could shake together. It was a bear garden. Fights took place everywhere at every period of the performance. And these people had to be held by a very simple, very strong story with a cliffhanger at the end of every scene, with virtue triumphant after being menaced, with the most pathetic characters being suddenly elevated by found prosperity. Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby are as close as you will get to watching a soap opera of the time. On the page. On the page. Brilliant. And he had a lot of friends in the in the theatre, didn't he as well? And and in fact, one of them is remembered inside the Harlequin. That's Joe Grimaldi, who pretty well invented... Well, people say he invented being a clown because clowns are joeys after him. But it would be more accurate to say he invented a form of astounding stand-up comedy. Actually, his best routines sound like Frankie Howard. And Joe Grimaldi's career ended just as Dickens was beginning his big grown-up theatre going. And indeed, one of Dickens's first money-earning jobs about the time he was writing Oliver Twist, which was written on spec, was to edit and partially ghostwrite the late Grimaldi's memoirs. So we'll move on in the walk, but backwards a little bit in Oliver's story. We're heading to the world of the workhouse of the poorest of the poor, and how they got to lead such an appalling life that poor Oliver could do nothing but run away. We're going to follow Arlington Way down to the end. We're going to cross over Rosebury Avenue and turn right. And then almost immediately, you can duck in through a little gate into Spa Green Park. Pause there. For the next eight or 10 months, Oliver was the victim of a systematic course of treachery and deception. He was brought up by hand. The hungry and destitute situation of the infant orphan was duly reported by the workhouse authorities to the parish authorities. The parish authorities inquired with dignity of the workhouse authorities whether there was no female then domiciled in the house who was in a situation to impart to Oliver Twist the consolation and nourishment of which he stood in need. The workhouse authorities replied with humility that there was not. Upon this, the parish authorities magnanimously and humanely resolved that Oliver should be farmed, or, in other words, that he should be dispatched to a branch workhouse some three miles off, where 20 or 30 other juvenile offenders against the poor laws rolled about the floor all day without the inconvenience of too much food or too much clothing under the parental superintendence of an elderly female who received the culprits at and for the consideration of seven pence halfpenny per small head per week. Seven pence halfpenny's worth per week is a good round diet for a child. A great deal may be got for seven pence halfpenny, quite enough to overload its stomach and make it uncomfortable. 
The elderly female was a woman of wisdom and experience. She knew what was good for children, and she had a very accurate perception of what was good for herself. So, she appropriated the greater part of the weekly stipend to her own use, and consigned the rising parochial generation to even a shorter allowance than was originally provided for them, thereby finding in the lowest depth a deeper still, and proving herself a very great experimental philosopher. Here we are in Spa Green Park. Veronica, what's, what's so special about this place? For one thing, this is a tiny surviving piece of the greenery that had once decorated this area just on the verge of London. And it wasn't quite built over, even in the time of Oliver. However, if you look towards the big blocks of flats at the back of the park, just behind there was a workhouse. It was one of the kinder workhouses in London. It was run by and for the Quakers. By modern standards, everybody in it would have been in a court charged with abuse and cruelty. Workhouses were where you went when you had nowhere else to go, and they were that because they were meant to be so. Just before the novel was written, there had been a reform of the old laws relating to the poor, which allowed groups of parishes to get together, mm-hmm to raise a rate to run workhouses. And they wanted to make them just as unattractive as they could. They wanted everybody off welfare and into work, except those who were too young, like Oliver, and those who were too old or infirm. Porridge, dirt, unkindness, and the contempt of everyone. Those whom Oliver had worked for as a child didn't even call him by his name. They called him Workhouse. After the workhouse, what came next? Well, for those who didn't want life in a workhouse, there was always crime. Unfortunately, after crime, almost invariably came punishment. And we're heading for one of London's landscapes of punishment. Well, to get there, we're going to walk to the end of the park and turn left into Gloucester Way. Follow the road round to the right and continue straight on for a while. At the next bend, turn left, cross over the zebra crossing. You're in Rosamond Street now. And then go straight on into Sparfields Park. Continue to the end of the little pedestrian walkway. You're in between the children's park and the park proper on your right and pause there. Everybody knows the story of another experimental philosopher who had a great theory about a horse being able to live without eating, and who demonstrated it so well that he got his own horse down to a straw a day, and would unquestionably have rendered him a very spirited and rampacious animal on nothing at all if he had not died four and twenty hours before he was to have had his first comfortable bait of air. Unfortunately for the experimental philosophy of the female to whose protecting care Oliver Twist was delivered over, a similar result usually attended the operation of her system. For, at the very moment when a child had contrived to exist upon the smallest possible portion of the weakest possible food, it did perversely happen, in eight and a half cases out of ten, either that it sickened from want and cold, or fell into the fire from neglect, or got half-smothered by accident, 
in any one of which cases the miserable little being was usually summoned into another world and there gathered to the fathers it had never known in this. Occasionally, when there was some more than usually interesting inquest upon a parish child who had been overlooked in turning up a bedstead or inadvertently scalded to death when there happened to be a washing, though the latter accident was very scarce, anything approaching to a washing being of rare occurrence in the farm, the jury would take it into their heads to ask troublesome questions, or the parishioners would rebelliously affix their signatures to a remonstrance. But these impertinences were speedily checked by the evidence of the surgeon and the testimony of the beadle, the former of whom had always opened the body and found nothing inside, which was very probable indeed, and the latter of whom invariably swore whatever the parish wanted, which was very self-devotional. Besides, the board made periodical pilgrimages to the farm and always sent the beadle the day before to say they were going. The children were neat and clean to behold when they went. And what more would the people have? So, hopefully you've made it here to Spa Fields by now. Veronica, what, tell us what we can see now. If we look southwards from here, we're going to see a series of both Victorian and fairly modern flats and office blocks. One of them was formerly a school. But in Oliver's time, and for some centuries before, these were major prisons. That was the Clerkenwell House of Detention. It was what we would call now a remand prison. You got sent there awaiting your trial, you got sent there awaiting sentence, you got sent there if you couldn't make bail. It has, or had, enormous underground chambers which are still there below the playground of the old school. Next to it was a bridewell, which is a place where you served time when you'd been convicted. Both of them were vast and grim. Pretty and miserable places. I they were meant to house malefactors from the edges of the city of London. They particularly took the overflow from Newgate. It was pretty well at overflowing point by the time of the Napoleonic Wars. So, guess what they did next? They took another prison, were going to go to it next, and they made it even worse. Still following the, the Dodgers route, basically. Turn round, retrace your steps up the little sort of pedestrian walkway, uh, back onto Rosamond Street, and turn left straight away into Exmouth Market. Walk up to the end of Exmouth Market and pause there. He turned over the leaves carelessly at first, but lighting on a passage which attracted his attention, he soon became intent upon the volume. It was a history of the lives and trials of great criminals, and the pages were soiled and thumbed with use. Here he read of dreadful crimes that made the blood run cold, of secret murders that had been committed by the lonely wayside, of bodies hidden from the eye of man in deep pits and wells which would not keep them down, deep as they were, but had yielded them up at last, after many years, and so maddened the murderers with the sight that in their horror they had confessed their guilt and yelled for the gibbet to end their agony. Here too he read of men who, lying in their beds at dead of night, had been tempted, so they said, and led on 
by their own bad thoughts to such dreadful bloodshed as it made the flesh creep and the limbs quail to think of. The terrible descriptions were so real and vivid that the sallow pages seemed to turn red with gore and the words upon them to be sounded in his ears as if they were whispered in hollow murmurs by the spirits of the dead. In a paroxysm of fear, the boy closed the book and thrust it from him. Then, falling upon his knees, he prayed heaven to spare him from such deeds, and rather to will that he should die at once than be reserved for crimes so fearful and appalling. By degrees, he grew more calm and besought in a low and broken voice that he might be rescued from his present dangers and that if any aid were to be raised up for a poor outcast boy who had never known the love of friends or kindred, it might come to him now. When desolate and deserted, he stood alone in the midst of wickedness and guilt. So hopefully we've made it to the far end of Exmouth Market by now. We're standing here at a very busy junction under the trees and just opposite what is now the massive Royal Mail sorting office of Mount Pleasant. Veronica, what, what was here in Dickens's time? Well, it was Mount Unpleasant <laughs> because in effect it was what came after detention, which was correction. It also was a fairly old prison. It went back as far back as the House of Detention did. But it had been hugely rebuilt and kept on being rebuilt throughout most of the early 19th century to deal with the vast crime problem that London had become. When Oliver encounters the Dodger, the Dodger can't believe He's met someone who isn't a criminal, because all he knows are criminals. And this is not unreal, because the number of reported crimes in England went up from about 5,000 in the year 1800 to 20,000 at the time of Oliver. And the entire nation was shaking itself as to what to do with criminals. So there were a number of new penal systems introduced and they were introduced in prisons that were turned into experiments and two of them that operated here from their earliest days were the silent system in which those convicted and jailed were not permitted to speak to each other at all and the treadmill. The treadmill, which is as bad as it sounds, was invented by Cubitt, the architect and civil engineer, in 1817 to give prisoners something useless to do. It was a kind of giant paddle wheel which was moved by the foot power of prisoners climbing it about 8,000 foot a day, 10 minutes on, 5 minutes off for eight-hour shifts. 
the equivalent of climbing a mountain every day. Sometimes... And for no purpose at all? It was, wasn't driving any machinery or, or...? Well, a few of them were connected, but it was found that they would do about as much work as a small hod of coal. <laughs> but many of them simply existed to, in effect, wear the prisoners out, terrify them so they would not re-offend, to utilise what could otherwise, I think, have been mutiny power. So when we say Dickensian, I mean, I mean, he actually wasn't inventing anything at all. It was as absolutely as dreadful as he describes it. You've got to remember that besides being a melodramatist, Dickens was writing what we would now call drama documentary. He was just scripting word for word the things he'd seen in the police courts and he'd seen going around these places. Right, well, let's head on even further into the darkest and most dingy part of Dickens London now. Walk up to the end here, turn left onto Farringdon Road, cross over to the right-hand side of the road and just after number 143 Farringdon Road, there's a small passageway just before the big brown building which coincidentally used to house the Guardian. In the alleyway, turn left, downhill, and at the junction, turn right. All being well, you should arrive at a corner, at the corner of that street just outside the Coach and Horses pub. Just how grim the experience of the treadmill was is casually thrown away by the Dodger, who is, of course, trying to prove he's a big, tough guy in this passage from the book. I have walked a long way. I've been walking these seven days. Walking for seven days? said the young gentleman. Ah, oh, I see, beak's order, eh? But, he added, noticing Oliver's look of surprise, I suppose you don't know what a beak is, my flash companion. Oliver mildly replied that he had always heard a bird's mouth described by the term in question. My eyes, how green! exclaimed the young gentleman. Why, a beak's a magistrate. When you walk by a beak's order, it's not straightforward, but always going up and never a coming down again. Was you never on a mill? What mill? inquired Oliver. What mill? Why the mill? The millers takes up so little room that it'll work inside a stone jug. and always goes better when the wind's low with people than when it's high, because then they can't get workmen. Although Oliver had enough to occupy his attention in keeping sight of his leader, he could not help bestowing a few hasty glances on either side of the way as he passed along. A dirtier or more wretched place he had never seen. The street was very narrow and muddy, and the air was impregnated with filthy odours. There were a good many small shops, but the only stock in trade appeared to be heaps of children, who, even at that time of night, were crawling in and out at the doors or screaming from the inside. The sole places that seemed to prosper amid the general blight of the place were the public houses, and in them the lowest orders of Irish were wrangling with might and main. Covered ways and yards, which here and there diverged from the main street, disclosed little knots of houses where drunken men and women were positively wallowing in filth. And from several of the doorways, great ill-looking fellows were cautiously emerging, bound to all appearance on no very well-disposed or harmless errands. 
by now, um, I hope you've made it down the alleyway at the back of the former Guardian offices. And if you look in the road outside the Coach and Horses pub, you'll see a drain. Take a listen. Veronica, can you tell me why we're standing in the middle of a busy road listening to a drain? Because that isn't a drain. That's the Fleet River down there. Of course, it's a sewer and a stormwater overflow now, but it was originally a river that rose on Hampstead Heath, flowed southwards, took a wiggle eastwards quite near where we are, ran right underneath here, and by the way, this area was much lower, much, much, much lower. It was called Hockley the Hole, and it didn't come lower than that. <laughs> and then turned south again to flow into the Thames by modern Blackfriars Bridge. By the 18th century, let alone by Dickens's time, it was an open ditch, and by the time of Oliver Twist, it was an uncovered sewer. This whole area around here was the worst kind of criminal slum. Absolutely full of the feral underclasses. <laughs> and they had a word for it. They called it a rookery. There were lots of rookeries in London and Dickens knew them all. Although he would hardly have gone into them alone. It was dangerous. I mean, It, it was, was a dangerous truly area. dangerous. The Guardian, I have always been delighted to say, stands on the site of a medieval dung heap where the offal from Smithfield used to be thrown <laughs> and then went up in the world to become a series of crude, jerry-built tenements extending right the way around the edges, indeed, to the Betsy Trotwood pub opposite, through which there were almost tunnels and courts. You could go from one house to the other without actually hitting the outside road. Thousands of people were crammed in there in destitute, derelict conditions. The law didn't go in except in sixes with backup. Hmm. And where we're going to turn into now was also a rookery. Indeed, it was Fagin's rookery. So to get there, we're going to turn back uh, to face Farringdon Road, but head right this time up Herbal Hill to the end. You'll arrive at Clerkenwell Road. Just on your left is a zebra crossing. Take that zebra crossing, cross over the Clerkenwell Road and go straight over into Saffron Hill. If you look straight ahead of you along Saffron Hill, just at the end on the right, you'll see a pub called the One Ton. That's where we'll stop. Oliver was just considering whether he hadn't better run away when they reached the bottom of the hill. His conductor, catching him by the arm, pushed open the door of a house near Field Lane and, drawing him into the passage, closed it behind him. Now then, cried a voice from below in reply to a whistle from the dodger. Plummy and slam, was the reply. This seemed to be some watchword or signal that all was right for the light of a feeble candle gleamed on the wall at the remote end of the passage and a man's face peeped out from where a balustrade of the old kitchen staircase had been broken away. There's two on you, said the man, thrusting the candle farther out and shading his eyes with his hand. Who's the t'other one? A new pal, replied Jack Dawkins, pulling Oliver forward. Where did he come from? Greenland. Is Fagin upstairs? 
Yeah, be sorting the wipes. Up with you. The candle was drawn back, and the face disappeared. Oliver, groping his way with one hand and having the other firmly grasped by his companion, ascended with much difficulty the dark and broken stairs, which his conductor mounted with an ease and expedition that showed he was well acquainted with them. He threw open the door of a back room and drew Oliver in after him. The walls and ceiling of the room were perfectly black with age and dirt. There was a deal table before the fire, upon which were a candle stuck in a ginger beer bottle, two or three pewter pots, a loaf and butter, and a plate in a frying pan which was on the fire, and which was secured to the mantelpiece by a string, some sausages were cooking. And standing over them, with a toasting fork in his hand, was a very old, shriveled Jew, whose villainous-looking and repulsive face was obscured by a quantity of matted red hair. He was dressed in a greasy flannel gown, with his throat bare, and seemed to be dividing his attention between the frying pan and a clothes horse, over which a great number of silk handkerchiefs were hanging. Several rough beds made of old sacks were huddled side by side on the floor. Seated round the table were four or five boys, none older than the Dodger, smoking long clay pipes and drinking spirits with the air of middle-aged men. These all crowded about their associate as he whispered a few words to the Jew, and then turned round and grinned at Oliver. So did the Jew himself, toasting fork in hand. This is him, Fagin, said Jack Dawkins. My friend, Oliver Twist. So we're now at the the One Ton Tavern. Walk a little way past and look down to your left and you will see the new Farringdon station. What was this like in Dickens' day? Where the railway now is, the filthy, fetid Fleet Ditch ran. Where the road now is, was the great jumble of derelict houses of Saffron Hill's own particular rookery, with people in Dickens's words, lounging, scolding, drinking, smoking, squabbling, fighting and swearing. Many of them Irish immigrants, many others the criminal fringes, forced into criminality for sheer want mostly. There was a very strong belief in this new reformed world of the 1830s and it grew stronger through Dickens's lifetime and Dickens himself was a fantastic driving force of it that if you could sweep away these places you would change the way of life so the fleet river was turned into the fleet sewer and a road farringdon road that built we over walked. the top of it yep and meanwhile the unused bed of the fleet river became part of the most amazing enterprise, which was the new Metropolitan Railway. Its proud and handsome station is the basis for what you're looking at down there now. It was a phenomenal feat of engineering. The idea was that if you demolished the rat-ridden wood, the tiny tenements that had been subdivided and subdivided and subdivided until there were six families in a house, mm. 12 families in a house. 
destitute and derelict, then the crime would go with them and the people living around wouldn't feel so threatened. Just sort of locate us in the story of Oliver Twist. What's the significance of this place to the story? Where we are now, just this very far end of Saffron Hill, debouched, in fact debauched would be a perfectly good word, into Field Lane. And Field Lane was where Fagin's headquarters were. In fact, there's a very plausible case to be made for the one-ton pub to be the original of the three cripples, which was one of Bill Sykes' headquarters. It doesn't get more violent and vicious and wretched than it got here. Go down Greville Street and cross over Farringdon Road at the Pelican Crossing. Go past Farringdon Station and just at the end there you'll see the Castle Pub. Keep straight on up Cowcross Street. About halfway up Cowcross Street, look out for an archway on your left. It's in between two modern buildings. You're turning left into Zinc House. Then bear immediately right and left again into Eagle Court. Now you're going to keep going straight on along Britain Street right to the end and at the end of Britain Street you'll cross Clerkenwell Road into Clerkenwell Green. As soon as you're into Clerkenwell Green, stop and admire the monumental building on your left. Where was Oliver at this stage? He's been playing games with the kindly boys and the peculiar old gentlemen. And they've taught him the fun game of picking a handkerchief out of a pocket. Remember, he's primary school age. They've taken him to the nearest respectable place to make him do it for real. By the way, there's a bookshop mentioned in this next extract. Right until the 1970s, there were second-hand bookshops and indeed bookstalls down in the Farringdon Road. They were just emerging from a narrow court, not far from the open square in Clerkenwell, which is yet called, by some strange perversion of terms, the Green, when the Dodger made a sudden stop and, laying his finger on his lip, drew his companions back again with the greatest caution and circumspection. What's the matter? demanded Oliver. Hush, replied the Dodger. Do you see that old cove at a bookstall? The old gentleman over the way, said Oliver. Yes, I see him. He'll do, said the Dodger. A prime plant, observed Master Charlie Bates. Oliver looked from one to the other with the greatest surprise, but he was not permitted to make any inquiries, for the two boys walked stealthily across the road and slunk close behind the old gentleman towards whom his attention had been directed. Oliver walked a few paces after them and, not knowing whether to advance or retire, stood looking on in silent amazement. The old gentleman was a very respectable-looking personage, with a powdered head and gold spectacles. He was dressed in a bottle-green coat with a black velvet collar, wore white trousers and carried a smart bamboo cane under his arm. He had taken up a book from the stall, and there he stood reading away as hard as if he were in his elbow chair in his own study. It is very possible that he fancied himself there. Indeed, for it was plain from his abstraction that he saw not the bookstall, nor the street, nor the boys, nor, in short, 
anything but the book itself, which he was reading straight through turning over the leaf when he got to the bottom of a page, beginning at the top line of the next one, and going regularly on with the greatest interest and eagerness. What was Oliver's horror and alarm as he stood a few paces off, looking on with his eyelids as wide open as they would possibly go, to see the Dodger plunge his hand into the old gentleman's pocket and draw from thence a handkerchief to see him hand the same to Charlie Bates, and finally to behold them both running away round the corner at full speed. In an instant, the whole mystery of the handkerchiefs and the watches and the jewels and the Jew rushed upon the boy's mind. He stood for a moment with the blood so tingling through all his veins from terror that he felt as if he were in a burning fire. Then, confused and frightened, he took to his heels and, not knowing what he did, made off as fast as he could lay his feet to the ground. This was all done in a minute's space. In the very instant when Oliver began to run, the old gentleman, putting his hand to his pocket and missing his handkerchief, turned sharp round. Seeing the boy scudding away at such a rapid pace, he very naturally concluded him to be the depredator, and shouting, Stop! Thief! with all his might, made off after him, book in hand. But the old gentleman was not the only person who raised the hue and cry. The Dodger and Master Bates, unwilling to attract public attention by running down the open street, had merely retired into the very first doorway around the corner. They no sooner heard the cry and saw Oliver running than, guessing exactly how the matter stood, they issued forth with great promptitude and shouting, Stop! Faith! Too, joined in the pursuit like good citizens. So away he went like the wind, with the old gentleman and the two boys roaring and shouting behind him. Stop, thief! Stop, thief! There is a magic in the sound. The tradesman leaves his counter, and the carman his wagon. The butcher throws down his tray, the baker his basket, the milkman his pail, the errand boy his parcels, the schoolboy his marbles, the pavia his pickaxe, the child his battledore. Away they run, pell-mell, helter-skelter, slap-dash. Tearing, yelling, screaming, knocking down the passengers as they turn the corners, rousing up the dogs and astonishing the fowls, and streets, squares and courts re-echo with the sound. Stop, thief! Stop, thief! The cry is taken up by a hundred voices, and the crowd accumulate at every turning. Away they fly, splashing through the mud and rattling along the pavements. Up go the windows, out run the people. Onward bear the mob, a whole audience desert punch in the very thickest of the plot. And joining the rushing throng, swell the shout and lend fresh vigour to the cry, Stop thief! Stop thief! Stop thief! Stop thief! There is a passion for hunting something deeply implanted in the human breast. One wretched, breathless child, panting with exhaustion, terror in his looks, agony in his eyes. Large drops of perspiration streaming down his face, strains every nerve to make head upon his pursuers, and as they follow on his track and gain upon him every instant, they hail his decreasing strength with still louder shouts, and whoop and scream with joy. Stop, thief! I stop him for God's sake, we're only in mercy!
So here we are at the beginning of Clark and Well Green, um, outside this rather splendid building. Veronica, what's the significance of this? That was the Middlesex Sessions House. That was a magnificent, purpose-built, 18th century major law court. Not anymore. We're outside London, remember, we're just into Middlesex in Dickens's time. And Clerkenwell Green, you can see even now, look around you, there are better than the ghosts of very good houses, pleasant little shops, a remarkably handsome church. It's almost a village, isn't it? It was a definite, respectable village. The road we've just walked along with its fine Queen Anne houses was a respectable place to live. This was a respectable place to shop. But you can see the way we've come across the Fleet River, just how close this wonderful, comfortable way of life with decent settled people with some kind a, of... A, a little haven of peace and security was and gentility. right next door to somewhere you didn't go except with an armed escort. Those who had money migrated away from the city and from its walkable environs. They began to form their own suburbs that went out along the newly built roads, ring roads. But at this time, and up perhaps until about 1850, entirely modern conjunctions of really desperate living conditions butted right up against comfortable and even ostentatious ways of life. And by the way, at this point, we haven't even got a proper police force. So for the last stop on this Dickens tour, go back to the Clerkenwell Road and turn right. Walk over the bridge and cross over Farringdon Road. And then you're going to take the second turning on your left, which is Saffron Hill, where you've already been, except that this time you're turning immediately right up Hatton Wall. And then just past the Hat and Tun pub, duck left through the archway. It's called Hatton Place. And walk just a few yards until you come to the grey gates on your right. While we're walking, we're going to hear from the book. Oliver Twist is under arrest and about to be led before Mr Fang, the magistrate. The offence had been committed within the district and indeed in the immediate neighbourhood of a very notorious metropolitan police office. The crowd had only the satisfaction of accompanying Oliver through two or three streets and down a place called Mutton Hill when he was led beneath a low archway and up a dirty court into this dispensary of summary justice by the back way. It was a small paved yard into which they turned, and here they encountered a stout man with a bunch of whiskers on his face and a bunch of keys in his hand. What's the matter now? said the man carelessly. A young fogel hunter, replied the man who had Oliver in charge. You the party that's been robbed, sir? inquired the man with the keys. Yes, I am replied the old gentleman. But I'm not sure that this boy actually took the handkerchief. I, I, I'd rather not press the case. Must go before the magistrate now, sir, replied the man. His worship will be disengaged in half a minute. Now, young gallows. This was an invitation for Oliver to enter through a door which he unlocked as he spoke and which led into a stone cell. Here he was searched and nothing being found upon him. 
locked up. Mr. Fang said with a sneer, Come, none of your tricks here, you young vagabond. They won't do. What's your name? Oliver tried to reply, but his tongue failed him. He was deadly pale, and the whole place seemed turning round and round. What's your name, you hardened scoundrel? demanded Mr. Fang. Officer, what's his name? This was addressed to a bluff old fellow in a striped waistcoat who was standing by the bar. He bent over Oliver and repeated the inquiry, but finding him really incapable of understanding the question, and knowing that his not replying would only infuriate the magistrate the more and add to the severity of his sentence, he hazarded a guess. Um, he says his name's Tom White, your worship, said this kind-hearted thief-taker. Oh, he won't speak out, won't he? said Fang. Very well, very well. Where does he live? Uh, where he can, your worship, replied the officer, again pretending to receive Oliver's answer. Has he any parents? inquired Mr Fang. He says they died in his infancy, your worship, replied the officer, hazarding the usual reply. At this point of the inquiry, Oliver raised his head and, looking round with imploring eyes, murmured a feeble prayer for a draught of water. Stuff and nonsense, said Mr Fang. Don't try to make a fool of me. I think he really is ill, Your Worship, remonstrated the officer. I know better, said Mr Fang. Take care of him, officer, said the old gentleman, raising his hands instinctively. He'll fall down. Stand away, officer, cried Fang. Let him if he likes. Oliver availed himself of the kind permission and fell to the floor in a fainting fit. The men in the office looked at each other, but no one dared to stir. I knew he was shamming, said Mr Fang, as if this were incontestable proof of the fact. Let him lie there. He'll soon be tired of that. How do you propose to deal with the case, sir? inquired the clerk in a low voice. Summarily, replied Mr Fang. He stands committed for three months. Hard labour, of course. Clear the office. So, Veronica, here we are then at our last stop on the tour, Hatton Place. What's this building we can see through the Grey Gates? That's a 19th century rebuilding on the site of what was the Hatton Garden Magistrates Court. (laughs) And that was presided over by a real magistrate whose name was A.S. Lang. And Dickens knew... What a monster he was, because by this time, Dickens had been earning a living, among other things, as a police court reporter. And the reputation of this man was, even for those, shall we say, somewhat stern times, borderline insane. He was really known to have done, as he did with Oliver, sentenced a child to hard labour. Dickens knew that he was this bad... And he got himself sort of smuggled into the court. We think roughly about the same time as he was writing Oliver. And he took notes. 
So once again, this is not even a drama documentary. This is pretty much Michael Moore. Pretty much reportage, yes. This was the back entryway. The respectable front door was around in Hatton Garden, which was then a place of rather good, rather elegant, mostly early 18th century buildings. But this place included impromptu holding cells and the crowd that captured Oliver knew well that what you did was deliver any malefactor to the back door and without proper evidence, without at this point even a proper police force. We are almost a decade away from the beginnings of the police force as we would recognise it. Mm. That was part of the reforms that Dickens helped bring about. It's not even a court martial. It is dragging someone in, accusing it's a kangaroo court. And he wanted to bring this to people's attention. And and did it work? I mean, what what happened to to, to the legendary Mr. Fang and the real Mr. Lang? The entirely unlegendary Mr. Lang was too choleric, too red-faced, too barking in every sense to sustain his position once Dickens had laughed at him in print, he was out. So the a end. novel finished him off? Pretty well, mm. yeah. Dickens was just at the very edge, all the way through the 1830s, from his first beginnings writing sketches by Boz, through to the novels of the 1840s saying, don't you realise this is what it's like? Right, and it had its effect. Thank you very much, Veronica Horwell. That's the end of this tour. The extracts from Oliver Twist were read by Chris Moran. The producer of this podcast tour was Ian Chambers. I'm John Henley, and thank you very much for listening. great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.